Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, August the 6th. Jan Fran is here with a little bit of a celebratory moment. We've reached a million downloads on The Briefing. Huzzah, we have. <laughs> and we've only been around for three and a half months as well. So we're, we are very strongly patting ourselves on the back this morning. And thanking you for listening. And thanking you, of course. All right, let's get into the news of the day, starting with the deadly Beirut blast. Yeah, it has been a horror 48 hours in Lebanon. At least 135 people, including an Australian, have been killed and up to 5,000 people injured by the devastating explosion that left a crater in Lebanon's capital, Beirut. The country's Prime Minister believes it was caused by almost 3,000 tonnes of the highly flammable industrial chemical ammonium nitrate, which is used in fertiliser. It was left in a warehouse at the city's port for six years. Surgeon Dr Faras Abade is in Beirut. Uh, he's described the situation in the city's hospitals to the ABC. Most of them, uh, the initial wave were people who were quite far away from the blast sites, but they had sustained glass injuries. And then we started having the ambulances bringing in people from the blast sites, and these were uh, more serious. Some of them had already uh, passed away. Jan, this is a horrific story. You see the pictures of debris and glass flying right through the whole city. Yeah, I mean, the explosion is catastrophic. I don't know if you've seen the vision. It just feels like um, something out of a, a, a film, but it's happening in a very small city. I think the thing that you need to understand about Beirut is that it's not a very big city at all and it's quite densely populated. Um, a lot of buildings uh, rather than, you know, homes sitting on quarter acre blocks. So there will be a lot of people devastated by this. 300,000 people are estimated to be homeless because their apartments were destroyed. Among them, my cousin's partner who works in downtown Beirut ended up with shrapnel in his body. Um, the hospitals were full, so he couldn't get to them. And his friend was the one that had to take them out of his body and uh, my cousin, who's married to him, had to ad- address the wounds and, and clean wow. them herself, you know, and this is happening all over the city. Yeah, and some of the hospitals had blackouts as well. Um, you were born in Lebanon. You've got family there, so it obviously hits really close to home yeah. for you. Why did this blast come at a particularly vulnerable time for Lebanon? I mean, there's no – it would be folly to say that there's a good time for something like this to happen, but in this particular moment, it's – a particularly difficult time for the country. It's on its knees economically. Lebanon is broke, basically. Um, it's suffering, I think, possibly the worst economic crisis it's seen in, in modern times. Uh, the prices of everyday items are flying through the roof. Inflation is high. Um, the Lebanese currency has dropped 80% since October. People are having to line up outside banks for three, four, five hours just to be able to withdraw um, $100 to be able to buy food for their family. Uh, it's a really dire situation in Lebanon at the moment. And given that we have now 300,000 people homeless, I, I, I just, I worry so much for the country and I don't see how it can rebuild. The Australian government's committed $2 million to help and uh, people around the world are donating. One fundraiser um, has raised £3 million uh, and is growing. So some people are chipping in. Do we know anything about how this explosion happened? Look, what we know is that there was almost 3,000 tonnes of ammonium nitrate stored in a warehouse for six years right next to an incredibly crucial port. 
there have been reports as to how that may have ignited. I think in in the next few days and, and weeks as the dust settles, we'll certainly know more. Um, it's anyone who knows the way that, that Lebanon operates, it's not surprising that this extremely flammable, dangerous explosive material was left in a warehouse for six years, um, seemingly unattended and, and rather easily sparkable. The other thing to, to bear in mind is that this particular port in Beirut is crucial to the country. Lebanon is landlocked by Syria and Israel. It has um, very little diplomatic relations with either of those countries, a very tumultuous relationship with both. With this crucial port damaged, there's real concern about how they'll actually get supplies into Lebanon, um, supplies that are needed now more than ever. And to other news, New South Wales and Queensland are one-upping each other on the tough COVID measures. Queensland's toughening border restrictions against New South Wales and New South Wales is toughening border restrictions against Victoria. Yes, from 1am Saturday, anyone headed to Queensland from New South Wales and the ACT uh, will be shut out because they are now both considered COVID hotspots. Now, this is even though there are no cases in the ACT, but the concern is that there are people from outside of the ACT driving down there and then flying to Queensland. Here's the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. We've seen that Victoria is not getting better and we're not going to wait for New South Wales to get worse. The Queensland Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, says there'll only be one way back into Queensland for residents. Queenslanders returning home will need to fly home to Queensland and if they have cars, organise alternative arrangements. New South Wales has also tightened its rules for Victoria. From 12.01am on Friday, anyone heading north will need to spend 14 days in quarantine and foot the bill themselves. There should be no difference from a New South Wales citizen coming back from an overseas destination in terms of the cost they're having to pay versus the cost of returning travellers from Victoria. Yeah, yesterday in Victoria we saw a record day for infections, 725 people testing positive, and a man in his 30s was one of 15 lives lost yesterday. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Professor Michael Kidd says he is COVID's youngest Australian victim. This is a stark reminder that while most of the deaths from COVID-19 are in older people, COVID-19 infection can be fatal to anyone at any age. Yeah, that news was a real kick in the guts yesterday, wasn't it? Particularly um, the amount of deaths, but also the, the case numbers again, 725. You think back to last Monday when Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said this after about 500 cases. Modelling with our um, effective reproduction number um, that I've seen most recently suggests that today should be the peak. Now, I'm not going to sit back and say today's the peak. We have, to, we have to see what happens in coming days. Last Monday. Turns out, wasn't the peak at all. And that's the real concern, isn't it? Because what that suggests is that these numbers have taken Victorian health officials by surprise as well. Yeah, and that really undermines confidence. And if you look at the front page of the Australian newspaper today, uh, they say they've got hold of Victorian government modelling, which shows that the peak is still weeks away and will come at around 1,100 cases a day. So either they're looking at different modelling or the modelling's changed since last Monday. And budget airline Tiger Air will soon be no more. Virgin Australia 
is shutting it down and also shedding 3,000 jobs. So that is around a third of its workforce. But CEO Paul Scarra admits that it might be more. In the industry we're in today, nothing can be guaranteed. Nobody really knows in this world exactly what the impact of the virus is going to be in an ongoing sense. So we can't guarantee that it's going to be capped at 3,000. So 6,000 staff will be kept on by uh, the company's new owner, Bain Capital, who's taking over after the airline's collapse in April. And there are no grounds to ban TikTok in Australia. That is the message from Prime Minister Scott Morrison. There's nothing at this point that would suggest to us that security interests have been compromised or Australian citizens have been compromised because of what's happening uh, with those applications. I know that'll make you happy, Jan. You're a huge fan of TikTok and a big user. (laughs) Well, I'm just, I think I'm actually too old to go on TikTok. I think it might be illegal and highly (laughs) embarrassing for me to be on there, you see. Yeah, I think I'm in the same category. Um, The Prime Minister speaking there, he was on a call to a US security forum He's warned that it's a case of buyer beware because the app, quote unquote, connects right back to China. It is true that with applications like TikTok, that data, that information can be accessed at a sovereign state level. Now, that is not the case in relation to the applications that are coming out of the United States. Yeah, it's quite an interesting position by Scott Morrison. Um, In the US, they're taking a much stronger stance. Donald Trump has told ByteDance, the owners of TikTok, that they need to sell it to an American company by September 15. And Trump also says that the US government should get a cut of the deal. Right. Sounds like he might be reading his own book that he wrote, which (laughs) makes Donald Trump very rich. The art of the deal. The art of the deal. Well, look, we do have a committee that's going to be looking into foreign interference through social media. That's going to happen over the next few months. It's expected to Um, present its final report before May 2022. So there's still some time to actually decide whether or not TikTok should be banned in Australia. Right, but Scott Morrison's come out ahead of that saying it probably won't be. Maybe he's a fan. Maybe he's got his own TikTok account. (laughs) Maybe all he wants to do is just lip sync on TikTok. Won't we let him be? All right, in a moment, Jamila Rizvi will join you as we look at the Melbourne curfew. Um, In the meantime, Jan, for anyone wanting to chip in and support the people of Beirut. How can they do that? Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, fundraising campaigns that have been started up by uh, non-government organisations. We'll put some of the information in the show notes for you. Um, And if you want, I'd encourage you to head over to my social media, Facebook and Instagram. There's some information there. So Jamila, you're living under this curfew right now. Can you describe what it's like? It's really unusual, Tom, because I haven't really been going out at night. I've got a little kid. We are usually at home, particularly during this coronavirus period. We're not going anywhere in the evenings. And yet on Monday night when they said nobody out after 8pm, I had this sudden urge to go out. (laughs) It, It was almost like being told that we couldn't made me realize all the things that we were missing. So suddenly you're imagining yourself running into the law on a regular basis where in, in your day-to-day life you almost never would. Yeah, you know that feeling you get when you're you're driving along and you're completely sober and you've had nothing to drink yes, and you see yeah. that the police are pulling someone over for mm. a drink driving test and suddenly you feel like, oh gosh, have I had any alcohol? And you know you haven't, but you, you still feel worried. It's like having that all the time. 
So we're briefing you on Melbourne's curfew, which, as you can hear, Jamila Rizvi is living with. I sure am. And it's a terribly eerie and uncomfortable feeling. Here's the moment our curfew was announced on Sunday. There will be a curfew across metropolitan Melbourne from 8pm this evening, and it will run from 8pm to 5am each and every day. And the only reason to be out of your home is to get care, to give care, or to go to and from work or be at work. So did that come as quite a shock, Jamila? Look, I think we all knew something big was coming. Melbournians had watched those cases rise and rise and rise, eventually settling around 450 a day, but not dropping. Something had to give. There's some shock and awe here uh, for people to genuinely understand uh, that it's a super challenging phase that we're in. So the reason for that shock and awe is that a curfew is an extremely rare measure. I guess for everybody, really, this is the first time that we've ever lived under a curfew. And, you know, the associations we have with those sort of things are from overseas countries, particularly in places where, you know, military law has been imposed, even without sort of consciously thinking about it a lot. There's a lot of kind of associations with the idea of a curfew that are probably quite troubling to people. That's psychologist Owen Kalaki, a senior researcher at Origin Youth Mental Health Service at Melbourne Uni. He's describing the psychological impact of the curfew. For some people, it's probably really quite difficult. One of the ways I've been thinking about this is that for each stage of the restrictions that we've had, it's kind of like people's world has closed in a little bit. First of all, you know, they couldn't go to work. And then there was, you know, wearing masks. And now, of course, there's, you know, limitations in in the, the hours of the day that people can actually leave their house and the amount of time that they can actually leave their house for as well. So it's kind of been a restriction of what they can do. And I think that obviously has some consequences around people's mental health for some people. Jamila just described the way you're potentially interacting with the law enforcement now in regards to so many of these laws as going past um, an RBT, a random breast testing set up on the road when you haven't even been drinking, but you get that kind of fear. What do you think of that analogy? That's a really good analogy. Um, I went out for a bike ride yesterday and uh, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how far from home I am. And I know I had to stop and check on the app to make sure I was. And again, it was that thing of going, well, I haven't actually done anything wrong, but maybe I have and, and I'm not sure of the consequences of that either. And the other thing, of course, is that when our world contracts like that, it also means that our connection to other people becomes more limited. And one of the things that's really important as a person and helps keep us uh, happy and sane and healthy is the degree to which we can exercise our connection to people, whether that's friends or family or or other people that we care about. And that's also contracting too uh, in this situation. Owen, is a curfew like this going to be more distressing for someone with a pre-existing health condition like anxiety or depression? Uh, It's definitely got the capacity to be... um, much more difficult for for people with those pre-existing conditions because for people with anxiety who are already perhaps a little bit predisposed to worry, they're going to worry more about all of those things. Um, Say, for example, people who've got a a health anxiety, because of the need for this curfew, they might actually feel that they need to um, be more careful than they perhaps already have been and perhaps they've already been very careful. And on the depression side of things, It's another sign that perhaps takes some hope away from people, even though the reason for it is hopefully to get this whole situation under control. If you've already got a lack of hope, which is one of the key kind of symptoms of depression, 
maybe this predisposes you to, to having even less hope that this situation is going to work out. Now we have a greater understanding of the psychological costs of the curfew. Let's get the medical perspective on the impact it's supposed to have from a health point of view. Professor John Matthews is a public health expert who's advised the Australian government and also the World Health Organization. Professor Matthews, how might a curfew stop the spread of COVID-19? Well, I guess the major inference we draw is that it's designed to reduce the mobility of young people who would otherwise be at risk of catching the virus and spreading the virus by being out and about in the evening. So you're talking about stopping socialising by young people, parties, get-togethers, those kinds of things? Yes, I think the the interpretation one would put upon it is that uh, government thinks that this is a strategy which will help to protect young people and help to protect them spreading the virus to other people. What do you think, Jamila? Do you, do you think most people will adhere to this? The penalties are pretty pretty severe. Well, I'm not that young, but my sense of it is that once something feels like it's illegal, there's an extra element of fear and there's an extra element of compliance. You know, we were all being told that masks were a sensible thing to wear in Melbourne. I hardly saw any of them. And yet the day there was a fine, suddenly human behaviour changes. Yeah, that sounds very reasonable. And, you know, in many respects, the government's flying in the dark. I don't think they would have had too much specific information to base this decision on. It just does seem a reasonable thing to do because it emphasises the importance to people who would be otherwise thinking about socialising and visiting friends and going out with friends in the evening. If everyone complies with these new rules, not just the curfews, but all of the elements of stage four of the lockdown, what does the modelling say should happen by the end of six weeks? Are we going to see a significant improvement in Melbourne or is it just about containing what's going on already? The new lockdown and the much more stringent regulations are designed to suppress the way from where we are at the moment, four, five, six hundred, seven hundred cases a day, down to something that's much more manageable. And the theory would say that that should succeed if the population follow the regulations that have been introduced. However, the new lockdown with suppression won't get rid of all the virus because no matter how much you're testing out there, you can never test everyone on every day of the week. So there will always be a small number. And uh, however, one hopes that if the suppression is active enough and maintained for as long as the six-week period, then the number of cases that'll of virus that'll survive in the community will be very small. The threat in the longer term is that lingering virus will come back once the active suppression and lockdown procedures have been relaxed. And that's the difficult unknown that everyone's grappling with at the moment. That was Professor John Matthew from the University of Melbourne. Not really a conclusive answer on whether this will be the thing that really makes a difference. Yeah, I think the painful reminder from the experts that we keep speaking to about coronavirus is that this is a live experiment. The way our government and governments across the world are responding 
we are taking a bit of a stab in the dark. We haven't done this before. Good point. (laughs) 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 Look, let's be honest. Um, Sometimes it's it's hard to know where to conclude these conversations because it's just like what a confusing series of events and information we're having to try and understand here. Yeah, there is an acute line to wrap this one up. We just have to see what happens and do our best. All right, that's it for the briefing today. On tomorrow's episode, we'll catch up with Craig Rucastle, formerly of The Chaser, uh, about his fight for climate change. A Podcast One production.